Welcome to the Mormon Faircast. I'm Ned Skarsbrick and one of the many volunteers of Fair Mormon who help those with faith issues. These podcasts will be a series of nine episodes done by Karen Trifoletti from the I Believe podcast. Each episode deals with issues regarding how the Bible is a reliable source of truth. These podcasts are used by permission of Karen Trifoletti and the I Believe podcast group. And now, the authenticity of the Bible. I'm Andrew Hancock, producer of I Believe Podcasts, intended for all truth seekers, from agnostic and religiously unaffiliated to those intellectually struggling, or friends of other faiths seeking to know more about life's meaning, Christianity, or Christ's church. Your host is Karen Trifoletti, a self-identified, perfectly imperfect, but graced follower of Jesus Christ. For more podcasts or information, please visit our website at IBelievePodcast.com or subscribe on iTunes. Here's Karen. Okay, hello. I'd like to welcome newcomers as well as our continuing audience to this episode of I Believe Podcast. We're excited to be with you. Today we're moving forward with our series on the authenticity of the Bible. This is actually part seven in which we'll be covering a very important topic, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a common and a linchpin area of attack of Christian critics. Clearly, opponents to the Christian worldview realize that if they can possibly dislodge this belief that Jesus truly did rise from the dead, he quickly becomes just another wise man, a guru, or some revolutionary non-son of God figure who can be disregarded or placed on the mantle of history and dismissed. So today, we'll point to both critics' claims and the valid reasons we have for countering those and counting on the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We're here again with our special guest, D.M. Johnson. Dave, welcome once more. Hey, it's good to be back with you. I'm excited about this topic we got today. Well, super. I, I think it might be a little surprising to some listeners that are unfamiliar with academic and cultural debate on these issues just to hear that the resurrection itself is under attack or that critics are really going after it. I mean, 10 years ago, that or 20 years ago, I should say, that wasn't the case, right? So I thought I might just set the stage for today's discussion by touching on a couple of surveys around the subject which took place recently and give us some context. So there's a survey of Americans at Easter in 2013 found that only 64% of Americans believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's a drop from 77% if you compare it to an Easter survey in 2012. So the difference between the two polls shows a 13 percentage point drop in the number of Americans who really believe that Christ rose from the dead between Easter 2012 and 2013 again. So Additionally, this year's poll found that 19% of Americans reject the central tenet of the Christian faith and do not believe that Christ was resurrected. And that's compared to only 7% who said they didn't believe that Christ rose from the dead a year ago. A staggering 12 percentage point jump. You know, so it seems that with all these attacks that we're seeing against Jesus, Christianity, the resurrection in general, they're having a noticeable and a net cultural and spiritual effect. Dave, we talked about the resurrection generally in the overview, and now we really get a chance to drill down into it, so I'm glad for that. Yeah, there's a lot of of great scholars and debaters and and folks that are out there who are champions of the resurrection of Jesus. And so what we're going to try to do in this cast is pull together uh, some of the approaches that they use from several different sources and kind of walk through um, some of the evidence around each of those points that that, that actually show uh, the resurrection of Jesus that point to it as being a plausible explanation for that evidence. Okay, great. So let's just do that. Let's 
Let's uh, walk through this information step by step with our audience using the quote, you know, the minimal facts approach, right? And we'll explain that. So I think along the way it would be good if we looked at some of the conspiracy theories as well and show why it really makes sense to believe that Jesus truly was resurrected. So Dave, can you begin by speaking to that approach and methodology, and then we'll move into the first fact? Okay. Yeah, there, there really is about 12 facts or, or so uh, which are agreed to by the majority of scholars who are credentialed in the area who've written on the subject. And it's interesting because uh, Gary Habermas is, is probably the most prominent uh, scholar on the subject of the resurrection in the world today, and he's actually tracked for the last 30 years uh, different people who have written on the subject. And so he's developed a methodology for looking at this data, uh, as you mentioned, which, which he refers to as the minimal facts approach. And, and this minimal facts approach is interesting, but it, it considers only the data that so strongly attested historically that they're granted by nearly every scholar who studies on the subject, even even the rather uh, skeptical ones. And so I like this methodology because I think if you can make your case from the mouth of of skeptics and atheists, Mm -hmm. it's even more powerful if you realize, look, this isn't just people who believe that that see these points. These are people who are, are skeptic as well. And so the basic concept that we need to keep in mind as we go through these points is that of what's called explanatory power. In other words, if we have different points uh, as, as a historian or as somebody who's trying to fill in what really happened, what we want to do is have an explanation, a hypothesis, that fills, that meets all of those points without having to twist or contort some of the data that's, that's seated by. And so we'll see when we go through this and we contrast uh, the explanatory power that the resurrection has versus some of these skeptical hypotheses that are put out there um, we'll see that, you know, these, these facts. And so um, the death is the first fact. So let's start there with the actual death of Jesus. Sure. So I think it's important right now as we talk about the death of Jesus to state right off the bat that one of the most popular theories out there is what people sometimes call the swoon theory or the apparent death theory. So basically this is the notion that Jesus didn't really die. He only appeared to be, to be dead. You know, I recently listened to Nabil, Nabil Qureshi's conversion story to Christianity, and I was reminded again that Muslims believe that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but that Allah only made it appear as if he died. Again, we'll put the sources on the website uh, so you can check back there. It seems to me that if we look at the gospel accounts, it's really hard to conclude anything other than death, right? I mean, we have the soldiers not breaking Jesus' bones because he was already dead. And in addition to that, we have the description of the spear being thrust into his side. You know, the Gospels really revealing that blood and water came out, which is a signature mark of death. So this seems pretty concrete and uniform for multiple witnesses and authors in the Gospel. So in light of all of this seemingly solid evidence from our early records in the Gospels, it's interesting to me that conspiracy theorist authors like Michael Bajant put forth the books basically saying they think that Jesus survived. I mean, there have been several other books putting forth such theories as well. And of course, there was a television program on the crucifixion uh, broadcast by the BBC in 2004 called Did Jesus Die? Uh, Lane Pagels, whom we referred to before, she also referred to a book by Hugh Schoenfield called The Passover Plot that suggests that Jesus was drugged, I mean, sedated on the cross, and that he appeared dead but could be revived later after he had been taken down. Um. And she noted 
that Jesus had been, again, in her words, that Jesus had been sedated on the cross, that he was removed quite early and therefore could well have survived, end quote. And she concludes, that's certainly a possibility. Well, starting here, Dave, what would you say in remarking further on these theories that come up and on the fact of Jesus' death by crucifixion? Yeah, the first thing I would say is that virtually all scholars um, who are credentialed, who study this uh, subject, agree on this point. To give you an idea of how far out there it is to not think Jesus died, we talked about Mm -hmm. the Jesus Seminar, and and depending on how you count those beads, these are people that are so, so liberal with how they look at the New Testament that, you know, they count, um, you know, somewhere between uh, 80 and 90 to percent, uh, depending on how you count it, of, of the words attributed to Jesus, they don't think, oh, Jesus mm-hmm. probably didn't say that. I mean, that's how far uh, John Dominic Crossan, who's basically the co-founder of the Jesus Seminar, says that the fact that Jesus died is as sure as anything historical ever can be. And wow. so we have people clear on all ends of the spectrum, uh, atheists, uh, agnostics, Bart Ehrman, for example, we've talked about him who fully uh, admit and realize, and, and it's probably you know no other fact around uh, this whole subject uh, of the of the historical Jesus is better attested than his death by crucifixion, and so not only is the crucifixion in every gospel narrative, which gives it you know multiple attestation, but we have it also confirmed. Remember from the from the earlier casts in non Christian sources, and, and so these include uh, Josephus. Uh, who is a Jewish uh, historian. We have Marabar Serapian who refers to it. We have the, the Roman historian Tacitus. Uh, we have the, the satirist Lucian of, of Samosata. We have the Jewish Talmud. Uh, Ju- Josephus tells us, um, Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, condemned him to the cross. And so from a perspective of historiography, Jesus' crucifixion meets um, the historical criteria of multiple and independent and early eyewitness testimony. And so um, it, it's really a powerful thing. And it's interesting because um, some people might find this fascinating. Josephus actually refers in his writings to one of his friends who survived a crucifixion. And so he has these three friends that were being crucified, and he goes up and he, and he cries and, and begs uh, for them to be taken down. And they're taken down, and they immediately get all of the best medical care that Rome had to offer, and two of the three of them still died. And so we have no evidence to support the fact that Jesus was taken down early, and and no evidence whatsoever that he got any kind of medical care, much less Rome's best. And Mm -hmm. so we know, as you said, the the spear in the side, the fact that the bones were not broken are great evidences that he was, in fact, dead. In fact, in, in 1986... Uh, they did an interesting article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that mm. actually went through how crucifixions worked and how these people suffered and died. And, and they talk about that, and it's, it's an amazing article. Matter of fact, I read the other day that it's their most commonly asked for article from, from prior where they talk about all these different things that happened. And, you know, uh, did he stay on the cross terribly long? We have to remember that he was horribly scourged before and um, to read exactly. the accounts. And the other thing to keep in mind, just from a historical perspective, is that Romans were good at this. I mean, it's horrific to think about, but they really were. Mm-hmm. We, have accounts, yeah, mm-hmm. we have accounts in history of, of Titus actually running out of lumber because they had mm. crucified so many people. And so we have a, a, a vast amount of evidence from all kinds of different sources that Jesus died. 
Very powerful. I, I think, you know, it's when we think about people denying the fact of his death in light of, I mean, all this evidence, it really seems to me like you can almost compare it with people who thought that, you know, the moon landing itself was faked. Right. It's like, you know, you just want some reason not to believe um, when you're faced with this compendium, I think. Um, we have multiple independent sources that we talked about, many of which are non-Christian for the death of Jesus Christ as prophesied. You know, we have those threads. This, this The evidence is just so strong, as we've stated so often, even credentialed scholars who are agnostic and atheists, as you pointed out again, Dave, seed this point. So I'd like to just quote something from uh, Dr. Gary Habermas again that sets this in perspective. So he said the following about the resurrection, quote, Skeptics must provide more than alternate theories for the resurrection. They must provide first-century evidence for those theories, end quote. I like that. It puts the burden of proof on them. If we step back from this for a minute and just look, not only at the resurrection as a whole, but the allegation that Jesus may have survived, there's simply no first century evidence or even alternate burial story that, that survives. All the evidence points to the fact that the biblical accounts of the death of Jesus are actually correct. So let's go forward a little bit. As mentioned in our overview cast, the second minimal fact that we have is the fact that the followers of Jesus believed that he'd risen from the dead and he appeared to them. I think this is really interesting to contemplate. You know, these facts that scholars like Gary Habermas and Michael Icona point out there are said to be agreed to by among well over 95% of all scholars who publish on the subject. I think I, I think most people wouldn't think an atheist or agnostic who was a scholar would think that the disciples had these experiences. Can you talk about the second fact, Dave? Yeah, we talked about this a little bit in an earlier cast where we talked about that early material that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians verses 3 through 7. And one of the reasons these scholars see this is they can tell that this is early kerygma. This is oral material, and, and the word in the Greek that's used um, lets you know that he's passing on something that he himself was given reciting. And so even the New Testament scholar and skeptic Gerd Ludemann this is a man who, who basically chided the Jesus Seminar for being too conservative. So this is somebody that's, that's way uh, over there on, on the spectrum, assigns this passage a very early date, stating the elements and tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, not later than three years. And so the formation of the appearance traditions mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3-8 through falls into the time between 30 and 33 CE. So remember, if you're out there listening, uh, biblical scholars will usually give two dates for the crucifixion, either 30 or 33. Our point here isn't isn't to quibble over that. It's just to say that these people are dating this very early, right. and it's really a stumbling block. And so he acknowledges, Ludeman, this scholar, uh, acknowledges it may be taken as, a historical, as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. This is an atheist mm-hmm. saying this. And people say, well, how can he say that? I mean, he, he tends to think it was, you know, maybe they hallucinated or other things, which I don't buy at all as a possibility, but he's admitting, hey, something happened here. That That is how sure this is there. And so when we have uh, one of the most liberal scholars here walking the planet uh, mm-hmm. saying this, that's, that's powerful uh, to me. And so everybody knows that that was early. And the other thing that we see, we have many, we have 11 early sources that say that the apostles were willing to die uh, for what they had seen. Uh, the fact that the apostles uh, saw what they saw 
and taught what they taught about the risen Jesus is is probably even the most agreed fact. It probably even mm-hmm. is more than the crucifixion to give you an idea of how broadly this is among scholars accepted. And so um, it's a common objection or an assertion that you know, to call these hallucinations and, and reasons that that doesn't work are uh, we have multiple appearances to individuals, to groups. Not only do we have multiple appearances, but we have physical interactions. We have the conversion of skeptics, uh, of, right. of Jesus' half-brother James and of Paul. We also have the empty tomb. Mm-hmm. And so it won't do just to put forth some uh, hypothesis that, remember, we have that explanatory power. It doesn't answer these other things. And not to mention to say motive. Right. They didn't have any motive to say that this did happen. In fact, they had every motive to say that it didn't. All they all they got for saying this was their own torture and and death. And so this is a a, a very solid fact. I agree. The apostles had zero reason to say this. As you said, I, I just can't get over how many appearances there were. I mean, like you said, we've had appearances to individuals like Mary Magdalene and Paul. We have numerous group appearances as you said. I mean, Paul even mentions in the famous passage in First uh, Corinthians 15, that there were, what, 500 men who had seen him. And we have situations where people touched him, walked with him, saw his wounds, ate with him. So there's so many different situations. I think the other thing that's powerful when, th- when we think about it is that we have verses where the resurrection is proclaimed. As in the passage, you know, we talk about where Paul talks about the 500 men that had seen them. I mean, he mentions that they were still alive. So he's basically saying, you know, these guys are around. You can go ask them for yourselves, right? So Paul never would have written something in an early letter that could have been refuted while he was trying to convey doctrine to the church at Corinth. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. We know um, when Acts was written that there were still also plenty of witnesses alive. And I think one of the passages that stands out is that God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it in Acts 2, uh, verse 32. That's powerful. So then, of course, several verses later, after Peter's testifying to them, they ask, you know, what to do, and Peter tells them to, quote, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Again, in Acts, in in verse 38. Well, let's move on to the third minimal fact, um, which is the conversion of the church persecutor Paul. There's so much in the way of Paul's conversion that solidifies itself with inward evidence of his reality. So, Dave, will you speak to that one? Yeah, when we talk about Paul, we need to refresh people about the, this principle. It's, it's one of the key things that historians, in assessing the historicity uh, of a given event, look at. And, and it's the principle of enemy attestation. This is basically the criterion that's used by critical scholars to look at these kinds of events. And so when someone has an enemy, someone with absolutely zero reason to say anything uh, positive, and they do, uh, this is a big deal to historians. And so it's important to state that for Paul, uh, we have pretty much a unanimous acceptance of authorship among scholars of seven of the epistles in the New Testament that are attributed to Paul. And it's important because these are Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First uh, Thessalonians and Philemon, and so this is why the minimal facts approach for the resurrection and, and scholars that that put this forth, like Gary Habermas, will only really use these undisputed epistles, which uh, skeptical scholars know they're written by Paul. And as we've seen in First Corinthians fifteen, we we keep going back there. It's not like these are ancillary books that right. don't really have value. We get core doctrine and core uh, historical proclamations in there, and so that's what's so powerful about them. And we think about um, 
Paul and his conversion, here's a couple of points to contemplate. Number one, he didn't really have any reason to change. And this kind of kills the hallucination theory. Some people mm-hmm. think, well, these guys are wishful thinking. Paul didn't have any reason to be wishful <laughs> thinking. He was consenting to, to Christians' deaths. He was putting them in prison. Um, the second thing to think about in Paul's conversion is, is his pre-conversion events are multiply attested. Uh, and the third thing was, as we, as we said, um, we have witnesses that he was willing to suffer and die for his belief. Um, from himself, we have that. From Luke, we have it. From Clement of Rome, from Polycarp, from Tertullian, we, we have this. Uh, from Origen later, we have this from multiple places. And fourth, we have his conversion. It wasn't based on hearing a story from another person. Paul right. is someone very unique in history. Everybody else back in that time, they heard, they, they felt the Holy Spirit, and, and they became converted. Paul was different. He was converted from firsthand evidence. Uh, he is a primary, not a secondary source. It's really important. It is. And, and we know from the first two chapters of Galatians, it's really interesting if you read the first two chapters of Galatians, that Paul made sure he was teaching the same gospel that Peter and the other apostles were. And I love the King James translation here. When he says uh, five words that are, that are powerful here, he says, they added nothing to me. Mm. He, he, the way he puts it, he went up there to see if he'd run in vain. Hey, am I still on the same page with you guys? And he, he talks about meeting uh, with Peter uh, for you know a couple of weeks, for 15 days. And he basically says, they added nothing to me. This is how we know that Paul was teaching the same uh, thing that the other apostles were teaching. And so if you, if you have heard our other cast on the Gospels, this is another reason that we can now anchor those Gospels uh, because of the of the testimony that we have to the teachings of Paul, we know that it's the same gospel uh, that was being taught, and so we have a lot of principles at work here with Paul. We have multiple attestation, we have enemy attestation, obviously, and then we have in the archaeology um, cast that we did, we have a lot of archaeological sites that correspond to the journey of Paul. We have um, things like the principle of embarrassment. He he corrects Peter about a theological issue. And so Paul is, is really a riddle that skeptics haven't been able to solve. Literally every resurrection debate you'll ever hear among scholars, uh, Paul and that early creed in 1 Corinthians 15 is, is right there, front and center. Thank you for that. The, I think the other thing about the Apostle Paul is the fact that he's the main author in the New Testament. That's and right. he's unpacking all this theology for us. And you know, if you think about it, it really seems like in many respects he was the perfect person to, to be the missionary to the Gentiles. He was you know, a Hebrew by birth, citizen of Rome. He studied in Greek city. He was a scholar. He understood the writings of his day and the writings of the Old Testament. So I can see why the debates would often center on Paul, as you, as you pointed out, Dave. It seems like it would be impossible to just dismiss him. I mean, there's just such overwhelming amount of evidence. Um, and I guess I also would agree on the point of, about wishful thinking. You know, I think that the people that have put forth the theories that the disciples were just grieved, they were sad, and therefore they hallucinated Jesus. I mean, that's far out there, too. I and mean, if falls right. apart with Paul, you know, he, like you said, he was persecuting Christians, he's putting them in prison, he's consenting to their deaths. You know, he would not have been grieving Jesus' death. He, he didn't, had nothing to gain by changing except his own persecution, torture, and death. So it's also really hard to dismiss the whole event on the road to Damascus because of the fact that Paul's made blind. I mean, right. 
you know, that's not the kind of thing that happens because of some experience that happens only in your mind. You know, it's just too <laughs> physical and too tangible. Okay. So these imagined theories require stepping out on a limb into nowhere where the evidence, while the evidence itself so easily leans in towards the acknowledgement of the reality of resurrection, as Davis pointed out so well. Well, the other things I sometimes hear people say is that the experience of Paul was solely a visionary event, that so that Christ wasn't really appearing to him. And they'll try and sometimes use this to refute a bodily resurrection of Jesus, because if that were the case, it would follow, they say. Well, this is where the power of the minimal facts approach to the resurrection is really neat, if you follow it through. So the hypothesis put forward by some, right, that Paul's feeling bad about how he treated the Christians and therefore had a visionary experience from grief is just wholly inadequate. It, it can't explain the, the empty tomb. So in that sense, it's obvious it lacks the explanatory power that Dave's been talking about. It just sidesteps the facts, really. Okay, that said, we could keep talking. Well, let's go on to our next fact about James, Jesus' half-brother, Dave. Yeah, the fourth, the fourth fact here that he's that used is the conversion of the skeptic James, the half-brother of Jesus. And so we, we do know that Jesus had uh, brothers, and, and one of them was James, and, and they're mentioned there in the New Testament. And the Gospels report that Jesus' brothers were unbelieving uh, during his ministry. Matter of fact, in, in one passage, it says, and I'll just read here, it says, and, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Some other translations will say, uh, beside himself. And so this is from Mark 3.21. I just read from the from the ESV there, but scholars agree that Jesus' family wasn't quite sure what he was doing. They, they, they were kind of almost embarrassed by him. And so this is where that, that principle of embarrassment comes in with his brother. And so Paul tells us in a famous passage, again, it's back in that 1 Corinthians 15. If, if you read one chapter from this cast, get familiar with 1 Corinthians 15. It's such a key mm. chapter. But in that chapter, he talks about the different appearances of Jesus, and he mentions um, that Jesus appeared to James, and this is a reference to um, Jesus' half-brother James. So we know that when Jesus was alive, they were unbelievers and, and they were doubters. And then we know that from this passage of Paul that he appeared um, to his half-brother James. And now we also know um, from subsequent events in Jesus' life that James um, was later identified as a leader in the Jerusalem church. We know that mm, from right. some passages in Acts and Galatians. Mm. So something happened. We have him not believing. Jesus dies. There's a resurrection appearance. And we now see him uh, being a leader uh, in the church. In his martyrdom, he's, he dies for the faith. And this is attested by non-Christian sources. Uh, Josephus and Hegesippus tell us about this, as well as Clem Clement of Alexandria. And so we have this, uh, again, multiply attested uh, principle of embarrassment going on, and we can see that chronology of how Jesus' half-brother James is transformed by this. And this is data, if we look at what happens to, to James, that even skeptics will grant. And so before we get into the fifth fact, the fifth fact is the, the empty tomb. Um, unlike the other facts um, that have nearly unanimous support, everything we've gone through till now it, it's high 90s. Everybody pretty much realizes that. Mm -hmm. With the empty tomb, um, we don't have quite that. We have somewhere between two-thirds and 75%, which is still uh, impressive. But Karen, let's have you 
I'll talk a little bit about the empty tomb. Well, yeah, let's move forward with that. The empty tomb, you know, it's specifically mentioned, first of all, in the New Testament. And the interesting part about this is that if you think about it, they could have actually stopped the Christian movement right in its tracks by simply producing the body of Jesus, right? This goes back to those principles we talked about in the podcast around methods that some historians use to determine the veracity of something. In the Gospel of Matthew, the enemies of Jesus were claiming that his disciples had stolen the body. Now, obviously, this is an implicit admission that they didn't have the body. That's important. So, if they did have the body, they would have certainly displayed it to stop the movement. So, I just want to read a quote that I think is powerful around the subject, and this is from a former Oxford University historian, historian William Want. He said, Quote, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb, and scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. Powerful quote. Yeah, and that source will be on the cast. So before we move past the empty tomb, I know there are lots of various theories with the empty tomb. I even once read someone's writing that dogs came and ate the body, and others that the apostles had identified the wrong tomb, so that's why it was empty. We have the story I just mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew itself that says the disciples had stolen the body and so forth. Dave, will you then take it from here and comment on the empty tomb and emphasize again the reasons why these and other theories don't have the explanatory power you know, that the resurrection itself does? I think it's important to recognize uh, the enemy attestation right there in the Gospels of the empty tomb, as you mentioned. That was the thing that they had said, oh, the disciples, you know, they stole the body, right? Mm -hmm. So they're admitting, the enemies are admitting, we don't have the body. And then we also have accounts from Justin Martyr and Tertullian uh, later saying that the same thing was being said in in their day. And so we have this multiply attested that the tomb uh, was empty, and here's some of the reasons um, uh, that the wrong tomb theory doesn't really hold any water. Uh, the first of which um, is that all of the Gospels, all four of them report the burial in the tomb uh, of Joseph Arimathea. That is not something you would make up. You wouldn't make up uh, something that happened to, to an enemy where they could refute it or say, no, it didn't. And, and Joseph's tomb, because he was prominent in, in society there, would have been well-known, most likely. He would have been uh, almost like a U.S. senator. He would have been something, someone who was prominent in the community. It also doesn't account, um, you know, it doesn't account for the appearances to the disciples. Uh, followers aren't convinced by an empty tomb. Uh, they're convinced by appearances. Paul isn't convinced by an empty tomb. He's, a, he's uh, there by appearances. And so no early sources uh, in any way suggest a wrong tomb. And again, here's another thing that a lot of people don't think about, and this is something uh, I, I really found fascinating when I first started looking at this evidence, mm-hmm. is the criterion of embarrassment comes into play again. We have the testimony of women. And so kind of like when you were saying, look, you wouldn't make up um, Matthew, or you wouldn't make up Luke, Luke or Mark when we were in our cast about the Gospels. This also is true here. You would never, if you were writing a narrative back in, in the first century, and you were trying to convince somebody of something, had women be your witnesses. And it's true that women were prominent in the church. They were respected by Christ and his followers. But in general, in society, uh, they weren't, they weren't uh, well treated. And so I'm going to read some quotes here. It says, Sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. Mm. <laughs> Not the best thing mm. to say about women, right? Here we have another one from antiquity. This is from the Talmud. It says, The word cannot exist without males and without females. 
Happy is he whose children are males, and woe to him whose children are females. Another one, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak the truth, either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. Another one, um, any evidence uh, which a woman gives is not valid to offer. Also, they are not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying uh, that one who is uh, rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. Wow. So you just wouldn't... If you were making something mm-hmm. up, which a lot of people try to say that's what happened, you would never put that out there. But yet, all four Gospels attest to the fact that women were there. Men only show up later and in two of the Gospels. Right. And so this is a very powerful reason for re- realizing that um, this, this account is historically uh, there. And so again, the, um, the stealing of the body, uh, people have talked about that. And the penalty would have been death mm-hmm. for those guards um, and the apostles really didn't have the means, the motive, or the opportunity. And again, as we've said before, uh, and this is back to what's so brilliant about this minimal facts approach that Dr. Habermas uh, basically put forth, pioneered, is that the conversion of Paul and James, um, they don't go get tortured for a lie. Right. It's got nothing to do with this fact. And so really the only answer is we look at all these different facts that explains all of them uh, is the resurrection. Well said, Dave. Um, I think we would be remiss if we had this podcast and didn't address the claim by some that the resurrection is really nothing more than like a copycat theory borrowed from pagan religions. Bill Mayer basically said as much in his film several years back called Religious, and you know also popular movies like Zeitgeist have purported similar theories. We also see theories um, put forth by authors like Timothy Freaky and Peter Gandy in their book, The Jesus Mysteries, Was the Original Jesus a Paying God, a Pagan God, excuse me, saying things like this. Why should we consider the stories of Orisis, Dionysus, Adonis, Attis, Mithras, and other pagan mystery saviors as fables, yet come across essentially the same story told in a Jewish context and believe it to be the biography of a carpenter from Bethlehem? Wow. Uh, then we have the famous Da Vinci Code, which put forth, you know, the quote, nothing in, in Christianity is original. Um, the book states that from communion to Jesus' birthday to Sunday worship was, quote, taken directly from earlier pagan religions. You know, I know we had some listeners who wanted us to deal with this specifically in our cast of the resurrection, so I think it's an important point to address. Dave, can you give some specific thoughts on this? Yeah, I actually have a lot of thoughts on this, and I, I deal with it uh, pretty extensively in my book. And the reality is that you could do an entire series of casts on this subject alone and go through one by one those various different so-called parallels and, and refute them like Osiris and these other. Um, but we can post some articles on the site that will allow those of you who want to do some in-depth research uh, specifically to go and, and research those. But what I'd, what I'd really like to do is lay out some points uh, that can show that Jesus was unique um, and the evidence that we have that we've got through presenting, people can get caught off by guard sometimes because if, if you hear some of these theories, it takes research to understand uh, the reality and to refute some of those things. And so I know people who've looked at some of this material and honestly came away with uh, you know the opinion afterwards that Jesus never existed. And, and so this kind of position would, would get you laughed out of most academic circles. 
And so uh, Bart Ehrman, who we've talked about a few times on these casts, is kind of a highly controversial uh, figure. And he was basically a Christian uh, that lost his faith and became an agnostic. And he's written lots of books, which people see as attacking Christianity. And, and ironically, it was Ehrman who put forth uh, in his book, Did Jesus Exist? Um, he, he put, and I'll quote him, he said, it's fair to say that mythicists as a group and as individuals are not taken seriously by the vast majority of scholars in the fields of New Testament and early Christianity and ancient history and theology. So some people, Karen, have asked me, well, gee, it's interesting, you know, I've been listening to your cast and every now and then you'll, you'll kind of go out of your way to state that somebody was a skeptic or an agnostic when you quote them. And I want you to think about what I just quoted. Here I'm quoting from someone who, who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, who's abandoned Christianity. And the reason I'm doing that is to show you that I'm not just going to someone from my church or my denomination or somebody who thinks like I do. Exactly. Across the spectrum, we can show that just even in academic circles, this is, this is the fringe, as Ehrman points out. And so usually if I can make a point like that, and you're, if you're a believer and you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe, uh, you can quote even people who are atheists who agree with much of the information and, and evidence that we're putting forth. So in in Ehrman's critique of the Jesus mysteries, you talked about that, Karen. You quoted from that. Ehrman says a few things that are that are pretty revealing, uh, like this, for example. He says he says, and I'm quoting: What, for example, is the proof that Osiris was born on December 25th before three shepherds, or that he was crucified, and that his death brought atonement for sin? or that he returned to life on earth by being raised from the dead. In fact, no ancient source says anything about Osiris or any other gods. He then goes on to say, he talks about interestingly about this, he says the book reads, he's talking about the Jesus mysteries, the book reads like an undergraduate <laughs> thesis filled with patently false information and inconsistencies. And he then goes on to, to just lay out some of these factual errors um, he'll sometimes talk about something that's put forth and say, what is the evidence? There is no such evidence. And here's a man who spent his whole life reading these, these kinds of histories. And so it's interesting. Um, he also says, and um, this is not his serious historical scholarship. It's, sensational, it's sensationalist writing driven by a desire to sell books. And so here's, here's just some of, if I can just kind of rapid fire lay these out, here's some quick bullets if you're listening. For folks out there who are wondering about these copycat theories that get brought up, there's dozens of them out there of why they're not really um, a good parallel to, to Christianity. Many, uh, yeah, many of these so-called mystery religions do not e even predate Christianity, and therefore they couldn't have even been copied from. And so a lot of the things that are put out there weren't even before Christianity. Um, the few mystery religions that do predate Christianity were not really in a geographic area where Christianity could have copied from them at, at the time. Uh, other religions don't have figures dying for sin. Most of these figures that are used as these so-called parallels um, are not even thought to be actual historical figures. If you go through most of them, a lot of them aren't even thought to have actually lived. And so most of these other figures um, that dying and coming back is actually supposed to represent the vegetation cycle and when the plants die off and they come back in the next season. And so if we take one of these most common ones that's cited as a supposed parallel, uh, which was copied from Osiris. And so let's, let's think about here as, as you're 
they're listening to this, think about if you think this is a parallel to Jesus. His brother kills him, and he chops him up into 14 pieces. He scatters the pieces all around. Then the goddess Isis feels some compassion for Osiris and puts him back together except for one piece. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you're you're getting the picture Mm. here. Um, Then it doesn't even come back to this world. It's in the nether world to be a god there. And so if you're listening to this, does, does that sound anything at all like, like Jesus? But what people will sometimes do is they'll put Christian words in there and then sit back and kind of marvel at the, at the parallels. But if you actually get the accounts, uh, they don't sound anything like uh, Jesus uh, and his events that happened to him. And so we have multiple witnesses, um, 30 people verified outside the New Testament, uh, non-Christian sources that give us facts which make up a storyline which is congruent with the New Testament. Let's all remember that. We have enemies. We have skeptics. None of these other claims has this kind of evidence. We have 42 sources for Jesus in the first 150 years, and multiple post-mortem appearances to groups, to individuals, as you mentioned, people touching him, talking with him. And so these so-called parallels um, really are nothing of the sort, but it can be confusing to people who haven't really dug into the evidence. Perfect. All right, so if we take these points, which are agreed to by scholars across the ideological spectrum, like Davis pointed out, and try to come up with a hypothesis that is true explanatory power to explain all of these evidential points, it's really hard to come up with any alternative theory other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the bottom line. I know that many people in the world do not want to accept this, maybe because of the religious implications or because they don't believe in miracles. But again, it's important to state that nobody is saying that Jesus rose from natural causes, but rather supernatural. Christians are saying that God raised Jesus from the dead, or this was supernaturally occurred. And if there's a God that created this universe and this world, resurrecting someone doesn't seem impossible, does it? In light of all this evidence that we've been talking about, um, and I appreciate Dave for sharing, I thought it might also be good to share a quote from the most prominent atheist of his day, Anthony Flew. Maybe you're familiar with him, maybe not. He was basically like Richard Dawkins uh, is now a few decades ago. He was converted to belief in God due to what he viewed as strong evidence that pointed towards the Creator. His story is fascinating. This quote is very interesting. He said, The evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity. End quote. Something to think about. And his book uh, is My Pilgrimage from Atheism to Theism. An interview he actually has with Gary Habermas. We'll post that on the site. The Apostle Paul says it pretty plainly himself, and I'll quote him. And if if, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. I think in this day of rampant skepticism, we as Christians need to arm ourselves with information and evidence for our faith. The famous scripture again comes to mind. Um, that you're familiar with in First Peter 3, always to be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. We hope this podcast has helped some of you to know that there are very good reasons to have hope and faith that we do have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for joining us on the I Believe podcast. Ask for your comments and tweets. For you to share the cast around with anybody that this might help. And thanks again to Dave uh, for being with us as a special guest on this podcast. Thanks. Thank you for listening to I Believe, Expressions of Faith, 
with host Karen Trifoletti. For the video of this podcast, visit our website at ibelievepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ibelievepodcast. Follow us on Twitter or give us a call at 1-85-KNOW-GOD-1 with your sincere questions. Karen would love to hear from you. If you like this podcast, you can help support it by subscribing to it in iTunes or writing a review. Post a link on your blog or Facebook page. As always, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast may not represent those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or that of Fair Mormon. Thanks for listening.